Welcome back to another edition of Coronation Radio. I am your host today, Patrick Gerhardt. And with me, we have technically my old boss at Coronation, uh, Matt Brown. Matt Brown, you may know from his many things at SB Nation, but also through his newsletter, multi-day newsletter. It's not a weekly. It comes out quite a bit, actually. Extra points. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. How are things in Chicago? Are you guys ready for football? Things in Chicago are wonderful. You know, you know, the this publication is a little bit unique in that I don't spend a ton of time breaking down depth charts or trying to forecast exactly who's going to be good. You know, so much of it really digs into business of college athletics or NCAA administrative stuff in college athletics. And generally, the summers are supposed to be slower for that sort of thing. And it's just been one jet, you know, bombshell after another for the last eight weeks. I am excited. I love this stuff. I'm grateful to dedicate my career to it. I'm very excited to watch a regular college football game now and, and, and do something that doesn't have the word subcommittee in it. No, I, I fully agree. I feel like the past two months, uh, there's been enough drama across the great college football world where we almost kind of forget that, oh, you know, maybe I should open up Phil Steele and see what's going to happen in 2021. Uh, speaking of 2021, what are your thoughts on this upcoming season? You know, it's interesting because – I, on, on one hand, I'm not entirely sure what to expect, right? Last season, beyond being, I think, mostly joyless, um, was all, it all, it's, I think it's also gave us some really incomplete and poor quality data. It's hard for me to, to really extrapolate off of what we saw last season for this year because most teams were playing down 10, 15, 16 players on a week-to-week basis. You had no idea who was healthy. You had no idea about the mental state of each team. The schedules are being rearranged all of the time. And now we have this year where um, a ton of teams, particularly G5 programs, are basically returning their entire production. So um, we can look at this and say, yeah, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Georgia, they're all probably going to be pretty good. And it's a it's a good bet that your playoffs going to have maybe three of those teams, but maybe even all four. But I am expecting throughout the season we're going to see a, a lot of upsets, a lot of, a lot of surprising week-to-week things just because we're, we're kind of operating off of uh, a, a bunch of bad data. It, and a team that maybe we only saw for four or five games last year from like the, the West Coast or maybe the MAC might end up being much, much better than we actually think. So in regards to bad data, which you just mentioned, what particular – issues or outputs that came out of last year do you think that we should just not look at that we historically have or is there something in particular that because only a handful of teams played double digit games last year that we should take into consideration and then let's i'm just going to add on to the fact that we've got a bunch of super seniors coming in this year yeah the, the super seniors thing is that is very important and so i would generally put less importance on returning production um simply because that's going to be the baseline. Most teams are going to return over 70%. At least most good teams are going to return most of set more like 70% of their production, if not more. So I, I know if anything, I might look at the, a team like BYU, for example, uh, that is, uh, not is, is abnormally um, is replacing a lot more production than than most teams in the country. They might be they might suffer more than than they might otherwise. But to come back and say, oh yeah, we're returning sixteen starters. Well, like yeah, so is most of your division. So I, I, that doesn't really help a whole lot. It's hard for me to really make any sweeping conclusions 
on most teams at West because there are multiple Pac-12 schools that play like five games. And of those, maybe two of them were at anything resembling full strength. So if, I, if, I, if I'm trying to draw conclusions based on per play, performance, or efficiency stats, man, I have no idea what the hell any of that data means this year. I mean, college football is generally like not super complicated, right? Like the team that uh, has, you know, more re- returning recruiting talent generally beats the team that doesn't. And if the team that less recruiting talent is going to win the game, generally they have uh, above average performances at, at quarterback and offensive skill positions or within a pass rush. And this year, I don't think that data is going to fit quite as neatly in that box. Probably will at the very high end and at the very low end. I think it's a safe assumption. UConn's probably going to be pretty terrible in the middle. We could do our best. But I, I, I would not be surprised, particularly in the first couple of weeks of the season, if we're off a lot more than we normally are. No, I, I would fully agree. I mean, we I mean, you go back to the Pac-12, the champion didn't even have a winning record going into the, the, the playoff or the, the championship game in regards to let's go back to the se- the super seniors uh, aspect of it, because this is going to last for the next three years we would say in, in terms of the ramifications, because you're going to have recruiting classes that are going to be lower as time goes, at least for the short term future, because of these super senior classes. Do you see this being an issue for some teams and a boon for others? It's it, Honestly, I, I don't expect this to last that much longer because I really do believe potentially as early as next season, if not earlier, there's going to be changes in NCAA recruiting policy that are going to allow teams to to sign more than 25 players in a recruiting class. Um, this is something that is has been pushed for by by not just big SEC programs, but also the MAC, uh, several G5 leagues, in part because now we have a world where athletes can transfer without uh, having to sit out a year, which means that a roster could potentially turn over significantly from year to year. And it, it can make it very easy for a team to not have 85 scholarship athletes. We saw this is this is the big reason why Kansas has been terrible for so long, right? Is because they've been literally uh, handicapped by how many athletes are allowed to sign and they're rolling out an FCS roster. Um, and and like, not, not just because like, haha, Kansas is bad, but like you guys have uh, 61 scholarship players, right? So I, I would imagine next year or two, you're going to have an, a, a system where maybe you can take 60 players over a two-year period um, or, or or take 30 players if you have a, a significant roster attrition, which would mean that if schools needed to kind of catch back up, uh, that they could. So Houston, that will be happy, basically. <laughs> I mean, I assume he's always happy. Well, that's true. But remember, isn't that, wasn't he part of the reason why they capped it at 25? That's funny. That was part of it. There were there were a couple of different SEC West programs that were you know bringing in forty kids, and it's it's honestly I think a really tricky puzzle to solve, because if you let major programs stockpile talent, you're going to nuke parity more than almost anything else, and you'd also don't want to create a position where uh, coaches have more power to run kids off, uh, especially in leagues that don't guarantee four year scholarships. But you also don't want to see a team. Uh, it, potentially for something that has nothing to do with them, be hamstrung at 61 scholarships for six years. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that things will get rejiggered in a level that, that makes sense for everybody. But at the NCAA and, and with administrators, you really never know. No, I, I think you bring up some good points there, especially with the, the parity aspect, because it seems like historically every time we try to fix parity, either nothing happens or things actually get worse. 
it's part, it's part, you know, part of the reason why we still see the same six teams in the 14 playoff every year. Yeah. I mean, I, in my reading of college football history, I don't think we've ever really had parody. The exact system right now is a little bit ahistorical because generally you don't see such a, a consolidation of elite talent among six schools. But you look at most decades, with the exception of maybe the few years after World War II and a few years in the early 1980s, each decade is usually dominated by, by five or six teams. And, and those are often the same teams that were dominating in the 1940s. Um, I, I, I can't think of many things that are legal <laughs> that would actually improve parity, right? Name, image, and likeness has the slim potential of maybe helping with that, but short of an antitrust exemption that that forces schools to cap spending um, or to somehow like limit freedom of choice for college students, I don't really think there's a there's an effective way to do it. Some some teams here are just going to be operating with way more advantages than others. No, I fully agree. In regards to that, let's go back to – we're going to hit on NIL here in a little bit, but let's go back to the season. Do you see any changes in regards to the hierarchy of college football, or will it be the, your basic Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, and, and, and who not? Is, is there any team – and again, last year makes it tough – are there any teams out there that are you think are going to either have a breakthrough or going to be kind of a you know dark horse in in the playoff contention? Yeah, I, you know, on one hand, it, it's always a safe bet to go chalk, right, in, in, in college football. But if, when I'm looking at these rosters right now of, of those of those elite teams, there really are. Um, None insignificant flaws, I think, in a couple of them. Ohio State is replacing one of the most productive quarterbacks in school history and still has some question marks in their secondary. Alabama is replacing a ton uh, of, of offensive production. Uh, the Clemson has not really been able to uh, build an offensive line at the same level as uh, Alabama or, or Georgia. Georgia, I think, is a safe bet to screw. Assume they're going to screw up somewhere along the way because they always have, right? Like, I mean, and, and I've I've seen credible college football analysts say like this might be your Alabama loses like twice. So if you, if, if you're talking about any specific team, yes, I can see a path for them to go ten and two. The the problem is. Who really steps in, right? I mean, and, and unfortunately, the answer is probably also going to be chalk. I'm, I'm not really a big believer in Iowa State as an actual college football playoff uh, contender. Um, I, they, if they win the Big 12, which is entirely possible, I mean, they're going to have to – it's hard for me to see them going through that slight undefeated. Uh, this, is, this might be the most talented Texas A&M team uh, from a full roster perspective, we had in over a decade, but they've got some big questions at quarterback. If you want to look at a team that that's that's not really being talked about, that I, I do think uh, has the potential to get in that conversation, we have to look out on the West Coast. And, and that is because Oregon and USC and Washington uh, basically have like no data. We know that Oregon has one of the best defensive line uh, players if not one of the best defenders, period, in all of college football. We uh, know that they have one of the best offensive lines in, in college football. We've seen Anthony Brown play college football, albeit for Boston College. Um, and we're, we're going to get a great listening test of just how good that team is in week two when they go to, when they go to Columbus. We know that USC has offensive uh, firepower, although there's some real big questions about their depth. And I have absolutely no idea what to make of Washington. But any one of those three teams, if they stay healthy – I think has the top line uh, talent to to potentially make a four team playoff. 
whether that's sustainable, whether that really changes like the, the trajectory of college football, I, I, I couldn't tell you. But if I had to go with the field, I'd, I would probably look heavier at the Pac-12 than I would about somebody unique, maybe in the Big Ten or Big 12 or somewhere else. So, yeah. No, so, like, a Coastal Carolina, like you said, Iowa State, any of those schools, uh, their chances of really breaking into the hierarchy is, is going to be slim, uh, especially in the long run. So you're looking back at the Pac-12, a conference that, if you ask me, has historically, because they're on the West Coast, been kind of pushed to the side. Everybody kind of blames the culture, the recruitment, other variables. But the national media doesn't even really pay that much close attention to them in a lot of ways, if you ask me. Do you think that having... USC, Oregon, and Washington, kind of the three marquee schools turning out to be very good, would that kind of push them into the limelight again? Or do you think they need more? More than anything right now is they need to win a big out-of-conference game. And the Pac-12 is going to have plenty of chances to do that. Oregon's going to uh, it's going to be a challenge for them to go into Columbus a week two and beat Ohio State. Ohio State hasn't lost a regular season game in two years, but it's it's possible. Um, Washington will host Michigan. That's a that's a very winnable game. Uh, UCLA is going to host uh, LSU. I think that's a winnable game, especially if, if UCLA is finally going to kind of take a step up to what we think that they could be. Um, you know, USC is going to get Notre Dame, of course. They need to win a couple of those, and if they do, then they're going to be in a position to to real to 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 control more of their own destiny come late November. I think if a Pac-12 team kind of backs into the playoff as the four seed by going eleven and one and just beating other Pac-12 teams and doesn't have a proof of concept that they've beaten somebody outside of that region, they might make the playoff. But that's not going to really dispel uh, narratives, I think, about this particular team. But if you finally are able to really get a scalp. Uh, in the central and eastern time zone, people are watching in September. That's going to to change that trajectory a little bit. They they just they just need to give the world a reason to pay attention. There's a couple of teams that are, are good enough this year, I think, to do that. Awesome. Okay, so this year, not a whole lot of change. If there's going to be any change, it's going to be coming from the West Coast. Do you see any of these coaches this year that are kind of? the new hotness moving along at the end of the season? And if so, who do you think would move on to, to greener pastures? Uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm trying to think right now about what are the jobs I expect to be open at the end of this season. I have a good chance of that. And if you had asked me like 12 months ago or, or you know, before the end of last football season, time is completely, you know, I have no idea what month it is anymore. My brain's been turned into tapioca pudding. <laughs> but like, I, I would have assumed that the last coaching cycle would have been slower because teams would have been more hesitant to pay out big buyouts during pandemic uncertainty. And that turned out to not really be the case. Um, but there were a couple of schools that I, I, I think could have, maybe in more, in more conventional circumstances, would have gone in a different direction. I imagine that there's going to be multiple openings next year within the ACC. I think Syracuse uh, has a good chance of opening. I think Pitt has a good chance of opening. Duke could open if Cutcliffe retires, or if I'm making like air quotes with my fingers right now, like retires. Uh, there, there, there could be a, a couple other positions there. I, it's, it's, I don't see a whole lot of turnover likely to happen 
within the Big Ten. And if I'm a Pac-12 school that's not Texas or Oklahoma, I want to do everything I possibly can to hang on to my coach right now because my job is dramatically less attractive <laughs> if, if we don't know what league we're going to be in, uh, in in two and a half seasons. Like you don't want to have to go to market unless you absolutely, absolutely have to. Um, but I, I mean, if, if, if I'm trying to imagine like who's like the hot G5 team coach that that's that's likely to move up, I, I can't think of, an, of an, uh, an immediate answer, right? That the the guy at Lafayette's turned down a couple of SEC openings, and I'm not sure if there's going to be a, a really particularly interesting gig um, that 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 opens up there. I don't know if Jamie Chadwell is who just got a raise at Coastal Carolina um, is going to find the, the right fit. Although maybe somebody in the ACC will talk to him. The 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 one interesting I think coach example that for this this cycle will be what happens if UCF goes like ten and two, who call who comes after Gus Malzahn? Because I I got a sinking suspicion he's not going to be in Orlando for eight years. I don't think it's the kind of gig where anybody's going to be there for eight years. And, and we'll see where he ends up, uh, you know, if he ends up hopping, taking an ACC or maybe some other kind of gig. He doesn't need Thoughtfully, to. He's loaded, but, like, he, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the market is for him. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely in the multi-multi-millionaire club of coaches who get fired and paid way more than anybody would imagine club. Um, and, and you do mention some good good coaches who could possibly see their way up, but it's it seems like there's a trend where coaches are almost kind of sitting and waiting for the right opportunity versus taking the first big money job they can get. Wouldn't you say? It depends a little bit on where you are, but if you are, if you're the good Sunbelt job, I don't know if there necessarily is the same impetus to move instantly. Right. I mean, the Sunbelt, I think in particular has evolved to the point where you're going to make half a million dollars. You are going to get a longer term deal. You don't have the same pressure that you might and at another place. And if you're at Coastal or you're at App State or you're at Arkansas State or maybe one of the Georgia schools, um, you can, you know, you can win nine games there. You, you, you will get multiple shots at the pervert at the job market. Whereas if you're at Kent State and you win eight games, buddy. If you got if there's a lifeboat out of there, you got to take it because there's absolutely no guarantee you're ever, ever going to do it again, right? Like I'm, I'm sure Sean Lewis is probably looking for another job. We'll see what happens with Kent this year, but there's there's a much stronger push to go grab a job if you can at a place where your financial and professional security is, is not as entrenched as it might be in some other G5 schools. The the more security you have, the pickier you can be. Yeah, that's a good point. No, and uh, I, I'll, I will say, your attention to ge- geography should be well noted on that. Um, mainly the difference between a Mac school and AAC, for that matter. You know, I mean, it's it, geography is playing a, a big factor in recruiting uh, alumni base and you know media for a lot of this. And I think you hit the nail on the head on that. Sure. Moving, moving forward, let's go over to an area that I know if anybody's an extra point subscriber like myself, you have really gone on extensively this year and past years on NIL, name, image, and likeness, which which came into being this summer. Uh, a lot of schools were prepared for it, as many of the listeners know, Nebraska was one of them. But, you know, there's still a lot of unknowns. And, you know, as much as people kind of scoff at the coaches and other administrators, you know, kind of worried about it. Uh, you know, th- there's some possible unintended consequences um, or pitfalls, I should say, 
you know, down the road in these players getting paid. I mean, um, you know, you could a lot of a lot of companies could take full advantage of of these of these situations. Give us a rundown of kind of your. We all kind of know the benefits of NIL. What are you still concerned about moving forward with NIL that has yet to be addressed? Does that make sense? It it does. I, I have I think I have a couple of different concerns um, for all parties. So the one one big concern, and this is less of a Nebraska concern, I think, than it might be for some other programs. But a lot of athletes still are missing some basic information they need to participate in this marketplace. And, and by that, I mean, one, knowing what a marketplace is, knowing what you should be charging for 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 uh, NIL deals, whether that's social or a, an appearance or or autographs or know how to go find some of those I mean, because of Nebraska's association with Open Doors. Um, and I've talked to several athletes uh, at the Olympic sports uh, in, at Nebraska. I think that they probably got more um, training and education, understanding what this market was going to look like before July 1 than most other schools did. But but even now, like I, I, I talked to, to, to student athletes who, who simply aren't sure of, of where to begin other than I think I'm interested in my school said I'm allowed to do it right now. So that, that's one thing. Um, I, I'm really concerned. Hey, about- Bar- Barstool wanted me. Yeah, the, the, sure. That's 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 a great example, right? And and then you're not sure if that's compliant. You're not sure what that does for future opportunities. We're, we're not. You're not sure what that does for your eligibility, and you're also not sure what you should be charging Barstool, who, as far as I know, isn't even giving people any money. Uh, they're just uh, giving you stuff and the ability to say you're a Barstool athlete in a way to pump up your Instagram numbers. And so, like, that's something you have to you have to kind of work your way through to see if it's it's, it's worth doing. Um, the other concern that I have is particularly about about social media endorsement opportunities for women athletes, because when you go onto a marketplace right now, when I say marketplace, I mean a site like Open Doors or No Cap Sports or Market Price or there's any number of websites that seek to pair athletes and brands together for 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 deals. But what a lot of these things, these, these websites will do if, as, a, as a brand, and I've, I've, you know, I've done this before, I've signed a couple of athletes, I'm looking to do it again right now, is you, you say, okay, I want an athlete and I want show, you know, sort by the highest social, uh, largest social media profiles, right? And for women, that generally means that they're going to show you a handful of women who uh, look a certain way and share a certain kind of content. There was a, a woman in the Washington Post heard about this today, and, and I think put it pretty succinctly as, you know, these are deals disproportionately going to the thin, white, and hot. Um, and look, there's absolutely no shame and no and, and like no 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 disparagement meant towards anybody who fits that profile and is getting paid. Many of them are excellent athletes, and that's what you want to do. Awesome. But there are a lot of other athletes that don't look like that, don't fit that particular profile but have a lot to offer both in terms of from their networks, their influence, their interest in particular products or, 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 or areas of education, and they're just not being found. And so that is a market inefficiency and that I think marketplaces have to do a better job of pairing people besides just pure network size. And athletes need to understand that uh, this is something that is for everybody. It's not just for the volleyball star that could be a model that has 80,000 Instagram followers. It's not just for the all-conference player. It's, I, 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 I really do believe every Division I athlete, and many non-Division I athletes, have an NIL value greater than zero. But they're going to need some help on, on all sides to, to find the right opportunities for them. And, and right now, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. 
Um, there, there's there ever the people are still trying to understand pricing. They're still trying to understand the most efficient way to reach out to athletes and how to, and 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 what those deals might look like. And I hope it gets better moving on because right now I think the last two months have been wonderful for college athletes. I think it's actually made college sports better, but it also risks leaving many people behind. No, I fully agree. And I'm actually going to bring up a school. I got a question, and it regard it's in regards to BYU. And they just recently announced that I think it was Built Bar. Yep. They Built Bar is going to pay for all non-scholarship athletes for their tuition, basically giving for, them, for football players for football non-scholarship football players. Right, yeah, for football players. That's awesome. Now, one thing I, I remember reading in one of your articles was that you know BYU does have a low tuition, which helps out considerably, but. You know, you have built doing that for a year, a two or three, and all of a sudden you have all these guys who normally wouldn't have a scholarship have a scholarship and they get used to it. Well, what happens when built decides this is no longer a good investment or they go under and all of a sudden that goes away? What is I mean, couldn't that possibly throw off an entire football team? I mean, all of a sudden you have like 40 some guys who were supposed to get and I'm not just I'm using BYU as an example. I can see this happening literally anywhere um, outside of, you know, a major Ivy League or something like that, where, you know, the tuition is 80 grand a year. Uh, you know, I mean, like th- that's just one of the problems I see popping up. You know, it's you know, what's the longevity of this? And do you need to put stop gaps in there to keep certain things from happening because it won't just hurt the kids it'll hurt the administration it'll hurt the image of the university you know all of a sudden you do you push away players because all of a sudden it's like well you know you've got to pay for yourself now you know that's it's a it's one of the many great questions about this deal and i remember when i when i called up byu i actually asked about this exact thing and they told me it's a year-to-year arrangement and built has indicated they intend to continue it but I think the smart thing then for any athlete, just in general, you got to read the contract <laughs> and and you need to, I think, plan for the worst case scenario. And uh, I, I hopefully built is super well capitalized and you can do a deal like this at BYU for not a ton of money because, um, you know, right, they, they have the lowest, I think the lowest tuition in all of FBS, um, you know, under, under $4,000 a year if you're a Latter-day Saint. So it's not an exorbitant amount of money if, if they go under, but like you should not plan on having four years of this arrangement because one, you don't know if you're going to be on that team for four years because if you're a walk-on, your spot is uh, is not guaranteed, right? Like you, you need to plan that way anyway, and you, you don't know that that company is going to be there forever unless you negotiate in your in your deal that it's, that it's multi-year. And that would be true for any scholarship athlete getting any of these deals. Do I think – I think there's a decent chance over the coming years that – some company is going to over leverage themselves, give too much money to athletes, especially when they're not well capitalized and go under. Like, especially when I see some of these these industries like in, in cryptocurrency uh, startups uh, where there's a t- so much volatility in general, like, could one of those go under before the end of the deal? Yeah. And like, and that's that's the risk you run with doing a contract, baby. Like, <laughs> hopefully you had a, a lawyer draw some of those things up. Do I think that that's going to cause like an existential roster problem within a team? Um, no. In, in part because I, I think BYU and to a lesser extent Nebraska are is unusual in that that they are relatively high profile programs where their walk on program 
not only has high cultural import, but generally is going to be relied upon to produce somebody on the two deep. Um, that's not the case for most schools. If, if there was some kind of NIL catastrophe and every single one of Ohio State's walk-ons decided to transfer to like Ohio Dominican or, or, or leave the program and they had to be replaced with 35 other ones, the team would be fine. Um, you might lose a little bit of locker room leadership, but you're not losing any actual production. If that happened at BYU, um, you're probably going to lose some a couple of contributors. And that also isn't the end of the world because you do have 85 scholarships, but it, it wouldn't be ideal. Where this could be a could become a big problem someday is if Built Bar or some other firm does this for an Olympic sport where you only have a handful of scholarships anyway, and that means that most of the actual contributors would be on that kind of deal. That could be much more disruptive if that went, went, went they, if they went under. But that's 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 a couple of hypotheticals down the line. So we're still at a place where NIL is still kind of the wild west. It's not. I mean, it's it's in the grand scheme of things, it's a good thing because the the athletes have control over their name, image, and likeness. But in terms of the parameters, it's still kind of a crapshoot, and a lot of it depends on where you're at. In, in indisputably. Um, it depends somewhat on where you are. A lot of these deals, particularly ones tied to social media, are national. So you could do them in Nebraska or New York City, uh, Division Two or, or Power Five. Some of them are, are going to be local. Like any other kind of business deal, the, you know, it, it depends a lot on who you're working with and it depends a lot on the strength of your contract. And if you are a big time athlete with a big time following, it's probably in your best interest to secure professional representation. There's some athletes at Nebraska, but even particularly with Nebraska volleyball, I think that my advice would probably be you should get an agent uh, to help you with some of these things. If you're somebody who's looking to sell a couple of tweets for 400 bucks, I think you're fine. Um, and and that, that's that's going to be part of the learning experience here for everybody. That's awesome. Final question, or I should say final area we're going to get into because we're kind of running out of time. You know, let's let's talk about the Nebraska football program. It's been an interesting year. Uh, I want to say year and a half. I'm just going to start with COVID and moving forward between the desire to play, the butting heads of the Big Ten Conference, um, the Oklahoma issue, the player issue, the just we've had a lot, you know, a lot of drama this past year. You know, I, I've asked a couple people about this on, on podcasts. What's what's your current view of the of the status of Nebraska football, and what do you think is some of the problems? I don't think Nebraska football is in a great place, and I, I think I have, we have to look at this here, and we have to be honest. Over the last decade. Uh, a lot of people, including myself, have written about some of the uh, financial and demographic and like administrative challenges for Nebraska. Obviously, the college football world is very different from the late 90s. But even among all of those headwinds, this is still a program that routinely recruits above a top 30 level. You can get four-star kids to Nebraska. And Nebraska, even under uh, really pretty mediocre coaches, has been able to do that. What we've seen here is a really a complete failure, especially on the offensive side of the ball, to develop them. And when that spans across multiple coaches, that makes me think that there are issues that are that are endemic to the program itself. Um, the Oklahoma situation actually, I think, really was a, a, a pretty good case study here in that it showed that this was not a very well-run athletic department. It is very unusual anywhere. Like I can tell you this is somebody who tracks this stuff for his job, for a coach – 
to unilaterally try to alter a football schedule eight months before the game, especially a game that would have been like as big of a deal as the Nebraska Oklahoma game. That is something that that happens with your athletic director and and multiple deputy athletic directors and and probably at the behest of a, of a broadcast partner. Uh, so the fact that there wasn't anybody to tell Frost, no, are you crazy? You, do you realize what that what kind of bad press that would be? Is is not a good sign. I I think that. Looking at the last decade, whether it's Nebraska's press corps or Nebraska's booster culture or other people within the university, um, I, I don't know if there's been a real culture of, of accountability and of realism of like what exactly is is possible here and how do we go about executing it. And so you've seen now a program that has enough money to be very competitive and recruits well enough to not win a national title, but definitely compete for Big Ten West titles like there's no reason nebraska should not be battling with wisconsin for division titles that's why they were brought into this league and there's no reason that they should go three years without making a ball game that's some of that is a scott frost problem but i think more of that is a that's a nebraska problem and if we still have that problem with multiple athletic directors and multiple coaches and you have to sit back and think what's been the constant um and that might be where your problem is no, and I, and I think you bring up some very good points because over the, you, you say last decade, I, I kind of go back two decades. <laughs> in my mind, it's kind of been a slow, gradual decline in a sure. way. You know, I mean, you really kind of want to go from 2001 and then it just kind of slowly slides down. And it's something I've been thinking about for a while because you look at schools like Tennessee, because everybody's comparing Nebraska to Tennessee and it's pretty easy to with their lack of, lack of success over the last 20-plus years. Uh, and the previous decade was very good to both schools. But the, the difference I've noticed, and I brought it up on my previous podcast interview, is that you have Tennessee, which is in a state with multiple teams, not just college, but pro. You have journalists who are following multiple teams, college and pro, and boosters, college, you know, like all across the board, it's not just one thing. So you hear a lot of grumblings in Tennessee before things get really bad. Like you hear about internal drama at places like Tennessee. At Nebraska, you don't until it hits the fan. You, you, you hear the press going after the coach after they get canned. You hear the, co the, the press and people, uh, internal and external university, go after the athletic director after they get canned. It's almost as if the university and the press here have this symbiotic relationship. They both know they need each other, so they try not to bite the other one too badly. You know, so, so it's making me think that I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a bigger problem here. It's not Scott Frost's issue. He's just a byproduct of it in a way, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that Scott Frost is a bad football coach. We, no, we that's, and, and, and that's yeah. what I'm getting at. Like, like he's, he's, he's really not a, a, a bad coach. But because I, I, one thing that we've been talking about at Coronation here is that, that I think a lot of people are poo-pooing because they don't like the drama. What's up with all these leaks? You know, somebody leaked the Oklahoma thing outside of, you know, outside of, 
the yeah. administration. Uh, I, Somebody, I, think, I think I know who that is, but I probably shouldn't say it. On, no, on, on no don't. Yeah, don't worry about it. You, you've got your you, you've no, I'm, I'm not going to pull that out of you. But, you know, there was, you know, it was announced, you know, it was leaked that Bill Moose was asked to step down before he officially retired. And the press before he officially retired kind of dumped on him. And then once he retired, everything went back to normal. Uh, this whole thing with the videoing of um, unsanctioned practices last year before during COVID was leaked out. You know, I mean, th- th- this is an issue that goes in time and time again. And, you know, you go back even farther. This goes back to Bo Pelini when his audio got leaked. And I know there's people out there who think they know or know, know who did it. But, I mean, why would you come to w- to this university to work? You know, with these issues. So that tells me there's something deeper. There's something bigger. And I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist, but I I, this happens a lot to a lot of universities. And I don't think Nebraska is susceptible. I think that there are a couple of schools right now that we can think of where there are particularly toxic administrative cultures. And by that, I, I mean that I think that is a combination of toxicity from some media members on the lower end, right? From boosters at the high end, uh, regents, university administrators, athletic department staffers, but but mostly the people who drive the money for this whole thing. One of the, the great genius of Nick Saban, in my mind, is not that he's a wizard on the chalkboard, although he is, or that he's uh, especially adept at hiring assistant coaches. Uh, on that level, he might actually just, just be good rather than like historically amazing. Where I think his true genius is, is organizational, where he's been able to kind of rein in all of the Alabama booster and and uh, money and political community and have them going in exactly the same direction. And we can think of a couple of places where that has simply not happened, despite other resources that, that, that should be enough for better performance than what you're getting. Tennessee is a great example. Uh, this is the, you know this, this is the fan base uh, kind of pushed by some local media and other political elements that pushed Greg that pushed Greg Schiano out um, for Jeremy Pruitt, which clearly did not work. Uh, you, we can, you can criticize the decision of Schiano, but like the, that that kind of riot doesn't happen at most other places. Texas is another great example. Which a place that has more money than Solomon, and uh, ha- has not been able to put two and two together in, in part because of, of this t- of this toxic external culture. USC for a while has has been one of those schools, and I, I think Nebraska kind of falls into that category either. And I'm not saying this to say like, listen, it's the local beats per- reason why this team hasn't been very good. I don't I don't really think that that's true. I I, I do think that there are there are there are forces that play here independent of just player development that make it difficult for anybody to be very successful here. And, and that includes ahead, ahead of this season, um, which there's, I, I would have, I think there's some significant holes on this roster and uh, you know, do do it, making a bowl game, I think is probable, but doing a whole lot beyond that is going to require us seeing something out of this, this football administration that we haven't seen yet. No, I, I, I think that's a good point and good insight over that. So Anyway, we're running out of time. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Give us a rundown over your newsletter, where we can find you, Twitter, and so on and so forth. 
Sure. I write Extra Points, which is a four days a week newsletter that covers the business, the political, the higher education and finance stories that shape college athletics. Uh, I've written a lot of original reporting here about name, image, and likeness. I've written about small conference, conference realignment. Uh, I've written about the NCAA Constitutional Convention, uh, about the you know, business forces that are that are shaping this this entire industry. All the all the things that that go into that shape what you actually see on a Saturday. You can subscribe for free and get two newsletters a week at extrapointsmb.com, or you can get all four for just eight bucks a month. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at MattBrownEP. Thanks again, and hopefully you guys come on again soon. Maybe we'll try to get you in uh, halfway through the season. Hey, so sounds great. It's my pleasure.